week at the close of the lesson, I told you that, that Jane had called about <clears throat> the article that was in the Jackson paper. And if you missed this, we're in the chapter, in the 11th chapter of John. And it's on the resurrection, on, on raising Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And I had this hysterically funny, if you're here for the first time, <clears throat> the day before last Monday, my sister called and told me of this account of a great-great-grandfather who's buried standing up. And so I, I got some facts wrong last week, and I wanted to clear them up for you. I got this yesterday. See, everything comes just in time. I mean, it's just amazing to me how it arrives just at the precise moment. <clears throat> but this is an article that's been um, verified. It is true, and it happens to be my great-great-grandfather. And Johnny and Marilyn were just telling me that they were sure this is the reason I'm so weird. is because I descended from this man. It says he was buried standing up. You have to see his tomb. Oh, it's way up, standing up. This refers to an article which appeared here some weeks ago with a picture of a mounded grave in a cemetery across the road from the old brick church near Lorman. I told you it was near Mount Holly. It wasn't. It's Lorman. At that time, we reported that the grave of a Mr. Woods was said to have been mounded because he was buried standing up. Only that theory had been discounted at that time. This was several months before. Now, from a great-granddaughter, Mrs. H.S. Wolfe of Port Gibson, we have the information that he really was buried standing up. She writes that Ephraim Woods, known as Eve, <laughs> was a proud old fellow, never wishing to be beholding to anyone in any way. He made a request of his family that upon his death, they would have the slaves hauled by wagons enough dirt from his own farm to go both under and over his gravesite. He was to be buried standing up so that he would not have to go to the trouble of and take the time to arise when his Savior came back for him on the judgment day. <laughs> Mrs. Wolf adds that Mr. Woods also requested that bricks made by slaves on his farm be taken to the graveyard and used for his tomb. Mr. Woods was born in 1809. I, that's priceless to me. I wouldn't take anything for it. And I was listening to last week's tape this morning. And we got so tickled at the end of this. I wish you could hear y'all laughing <laughs> at the end of it. And I was just sitting there making up my face and laughing and tears rolling <laughs> down my face from last week. But that's, that's great-grandfather. <laughs> and now we know. <laughs> but poor old fellow didn't understand that he's not going to get there any quicker than anybody else if he's standing up. <laughs> well, let's just all lie down. <laughs> Don't have anybody go to any great amount of trouble because it's going to be in an instant. Okay, if you missed last week, and where we're going to start when we start, we're going to take the rest of the 11th chapter, hopefully today. Then next week, and the next week, we'll divide the 12th chapter into two parts. It takes us two weeks for any one chapter in John, because there are at least 50 verses in each chapter, it seems. And then we'll start on, when we start the night class, that Tuesday, we'll be starting on the 13th chapter, which is the final uh, series of discourses, and really the final week of the life of Christ. So it'll be a good stopping place, and according to your outline, that'll be Roman numeral 3. Christ's ministry to his own. So it's going to be a good breaking place. If you recall some things from last week that maybe I'll just refresh your memory with, we're in the city of Bethany. Bethany is about two miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem. And you would go, I explained last week, you would go from Jerusalem, set on a hill, you would go down the Valley Kidron and up the Mount of Olives, and then over on the other side of the Mount of Olives is the little city or the village of Bethany. So this is where Jesus went at the end of a day, or if he was just worn out from all the activity and all the pressing of the crowd in on him, he would always go to this home for some reason. 
he felt that he could get away from the, you know, the whirlwind that he was in when he got to this home. And they would allow him just the privilege of relaxing, of just sitting down and just relaxing with them, which was such a compliment to this family. That they would not only take in a prophet, take in the Son of God, but that they would make him feel at home. Now, we looked last week at an account from Luke's Gospel where these two women, into Mary and Martha, and after last week, uh, I heard from a lot of different people that you did identify where you were. We found a lot more Marthas out of that one than we found Mary's. Martha was the hyperactive one who's always scrubbing, always cleaning, always cooking, always doing all these tasks. Oh, she was busy, but she did so many tasks and so much work in the flesh until she missed out on some of the things she needed as far as the spiritual were concerned. And when Jesus was in their home, she was so busy preparing food that she thought he should have, being who he was. And, and if Jesus were in my home as a physical guest, he lives there all the time, but if he were a physical person who came into my home, I believe I'd probably think a long time before I gave him a peanut butter sandwich. Wouldn't you? But, but at least, I think this is Pat. I kind of thought of Vance Havner when, when I was thinking of this. And when we had Vance, that's kind of next, right, you know, not too far under somebody like a special guest. And when we had him, we just worked ourselves to death preparing before he got there because while he was there, we didn't want to miss a word. I think this is the happy medium. I think this is the best way not to, you know, to busy yourself. So in the kitchen, when you have a special guest, a man of God there, you take advantage of what he has to say. And don't you deprive yourself as a woman of this by, by hurrying and scurrying in the kitchen cooking. We can do these things ahead of time. As a wife and mother, we can cook on Saturday. If you feel like your family's got to have a big meal on Sunday, you do your cooking on Saturday. And you be with your family in the house of God on Sunday. Uh, there's nothing so important on a Tuesday morning as coming and hearing this expanded from the Word of God. There's not a closet that needs to be cleaned out badly enough for you to stay home and miss it on Sunday morning. And unless the only excuse I can think about of is if you're sick enough or if for some reason you were going to minister in a way like Barbara Cream, that's, that's more important than this to me. If you're going into a hospital to witness to somebody and minister to somebody like that, then that takes precedence even over this. But still, don't, don't neglect the time that you need to study and I need to study. We need it. That's the bread of life. We're, we're devouring. We're taking into our souls the things we're going to need when the opportunity comes to share it or when the chips are down and times are rough. We need what we're getting on Tuesday morning and Sundays and Wednesday nights. We've got to have it. And the cleaning out the closets and all that kind of stuff is not going to suffice when the need comes. And you might have a clean closet, but you're going to have an empty soul. And what's it going to, to count for if we've missed out? Now, one thing I did make clear, if you were here last week, I made it super clear that never does it allow us the privilege of allowing our families to live like pigs in a pigsty. That's not what it's saying. It's saying get your priorities in right, follow all the time. You have a certain amount of time in a day, get the things lined up in some kind of order of priority, and there will be enough time for everything. In the course of a given week, you'll get your house cleaned up, and your family won't be starving because they're not having anything nutritious to eat. They will have these things. And that's exactly what he expects of us, that there be some Martha in us and there be some Mary in us, you know? And that's the happy, happy kind of place that a, a wife and a mother
feels in her life when we have what we need as an individual spiritually as a child of God too. And then at the same time, we have the fulfillment to care for in a very real way. All right, so keep those two things in mind. And that maybe after listening to the tape this morning was the thing that I wanted to bring out, maybe more than almost anything else, about this family, about these two sisters. And you remember in that account in Luke where uh, Jesus said, where Martha came in and said, Jesus, tell her to get up. You know, she was sitting at his feet as was her usual place. Mary was always at the feet of Jesus. Is he, if he was there, she was at his feet. She had a spiritual kind of hunger within her that caused her when he was in her presence to just fall at his feet. I like that. I, like, I think that's super special. And every account of her, you know, when she's mentioned, she's at his feet. And Martha's always busy about doing something. All right, so Martha comes and says to Jesus, tell her to get up and come help me cook and come help me do with the kitchen work. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you don't you understand that Mary has the best part. So if one or the other has to take precedence, this, according to Jesus' own words, takes the better part. This is the better part. And if you have to ignore one, for instance, if, if in the course of a given day you have the opportunity for spiritual feeding and you really need to do something in the physical realm, what takes precedence? It sure does. It sure does. So let's don't ever miss that. But I think if we ever get our lives worked out according to priority, there will be time for all these things. You know, seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. All these other things are going to find their place. All these other things are going to be worked out in your life. But be sure you get your first priority right. All right, now coming on down, you remember last week we hit um, the part where Martha, Jesus, arrives. Now you remember in that, that account that we had last week, the first part of the 11th chapter, Jesus got the word that Lazarus was sick, and he knew that he was going to be dead before he got back. But he said, because I love them, because I love them, I'm going to wait two days before I go back. And he had from the human standpoint, she didn't understand that. You didn't understand why the minute he got that message, he didn't run, but he didn't. He said, I, I waited, I delayed. That prayer request was not answered just like that. Waited two days. And by the time he went back, it had been four days since Lazarus was dead. And I want you to get a mental picture of a, of a Jewish house of mourning. So I'm going to try to recall it from, from my mental picture. This is what I do, and it might be a help to you. Do you have trouble remembering things when you read them? Does anybody have any trouble remembering things? Well, a great way to remember things is to visualize. Uh, Mike Gilchrist shared with this, personalize, visualize, memorize. Memorize, personalize, visualize, wherever you want to put these. But what I do when I read something like that is I get a mental picture of it, and then I call back the mental picture, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it comes back. All right, so here's the mental picture of what happens. Somebody in a house like Lazarus dies. And in that climate of Palestine at that time, the weather was so hot, until you had to get that person wrapped in its linen and, and anointed and buried within that first day. You know, hopefully it wouldn't take more than a day. Under some circumstances, sometimes it took a little longer. But certainly no more than the next day. Usually they were rushed into their linen wrap and anointing and put into the grave. And do you remember Johnny drew a picture last week that, that I wish we still had on the board? But anyway, 
In the case of Lazarus, he was wrapped very hurriedly and put into the grave. We're told by historians that many people were buried alive because of this. Many people had gone into a coma and were buried so fast, you know, that there were evidences that many were buried alive because of their coming, you know, even in the tomb back to life and moving from the place they were. Well, in, the, in this particular case, and this is the one I want you to visualize, he, was, he died, they got him ready, they took him to the tomb, and when they would take him out of the house while the dead body was in the house, you couldn't have anything to eat or anything to drink. Activity went on in that house. But once you got the body you know, onto the, the thing and carrying it over to the tomb, which was usually pretty far away from the house, uh, the mourners would line up on both sides, and as they carried the body through, the women went first. And this was to say to everybody looking that women were the ones who were the, the ones who first sinned. First sin that came in the world that caused sickness and death was caused by a woman. So they'd put all the women out in front. <laughs> and we would have to go as women, you know, saying to the world, we're responsible for this. And then the, the, the uh, people who were the family, you know, the, the primary mourners would follow along behind the casket. They didn't have caskets back then, but whatever they were in. And then they would carry him over to the, uh, the place where you would go into a mourning chamber. And then the body was usually put beyond the mourning chamber. And the immediate family would go into the mourning chamber. They would put the body in there, and they would weep and wail. I mean, scream, scream, like wailing. It wasn't like tears running down your face because you were crying. It was like screaming. And if you've seen, do you remember any accounts where you've watched on, on television today and maybe there, there's been a, a, a lot of murders or something by the terrorists and, and the Jews were murdered and you watch the people around, do you, do you ever notice, start noticing the way they just start almost tearing their clothes and just screaming and just going into all kinds of elaborate contortions and everything. All right, this was, the more you did that, the more you said, I love him, see. If you were the quiet person who doesn't cry, and you know how many of those we have. We have, I have in my family, I'm the emotional one. But there are two other members of my family who very seldom ever cry. Now, if, if they didn't cry, it would mean they didn't love you. I would always be classified as the one who really loved, you know, because of the, the vast amount of tears I shed. That has nothing to do with it. There are some people who can turn tears on like tap water. Doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. All right, so when you got him in there and you came back, after you got the body there and you had mourned and weeped and wailed and everything, you came back through. And as you came back through, there were two lines of mourners and the, the family went through the lines of mourners and they had to pay you the respect of not talking to you at that point. They wouldn't say anything to you. They allowed you to go back through this long, long lines. And, and you, that was your sacred duty. If somebody was in trouble like that, you owed them that, you know, that show, demonstration that you cared by going to that funeral. Or when you got back to the house and you got back in for seven days, we had severe mourning. We had a real mourning period. And during that time, you couldn't wear shoes. You couldn't bathe. You couldn't have, transact any kind of business. You couldn't study any of the law. You couldn't do anything like this. You just sat and wailed and weeped. And during that time, their friends brought in the food because you didn't prepare any food during those seven days. And friends would bring in the food and share with you. And then at the end of the seven days, you had a period of 30 days of light mourning. 
So during the period of light morning, you could read from the Torah, you could read from the law, you could read, uh, you could transact some business, you could put shoes back on, you could drink something, you could bathe, you know, you could do some things like that during the 30 days, but still during that period, you spent as much time as you possibly could going back and forth to this wailing chamber. Now, all of that is because this is going to come out in here, in this scripture. You're going to see all of these things as a part of what was taking place in this house of mourning. Jewish house of mourning. So you need to keep those things in mind. All right, let's go down to where we left off. Jesus has just said, Martha has just said, if you had been here, she was the one during those seven days. And remember, this was the fourth day. And during those seven days, you were not supposed to leave your house. You were supposed to stay in your house. Word came that Jesus was coming. He was not at the house. He was out some distance from the house. Word came, Jesus is out here at a certain place. Martha, remember? Domineering Martha, the one who always took the, you know, the bull by the hand or, or whatever. She was always the one who jumped up and ran. She's the one who leaves the house. That was against the, the conventions of that day. Mary stayed put, according to what? Martha went to Jesus, and she said, If you had been here, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And even now, there was the part where there was some protest and some faith. Even now, I believe that you could do something for him. If, if you would, you know, whatever you would do would be right. And I know that you could do something, even in this circumstance. Though she probably didn't know what he would do. And Jesus explains to her that he is the resurrection and the life. Your brother's not dead. Your brother will come back to life again. She said, I know he will one day out at the resurrection day. And he said, no, your brother will be raised. I am the resurrection. The resurrection, Jesus says, is not an it. The resurrection is Jesus. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And if you want resurrection, if you want life, and as far as we're concerned here today, and I brought this out very carefully last week, you, he's saying that to us today. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You have no life in you. There is no spiritual life in, in you. If you want this life, you come to me, a person, because I am the resurrection. I am the life. You come to me. You receive me as your Lord and as your Savior. Then you are, are raised from death and, and sins and trespasses and sins, and you're raised to walk in the newness of life. We hear this all the time, but this is exactly what he's saying here for us today. If you want life, if you want to be resurrected from that old kind of life that you've been living for years and years and years and years, you can't stand it, it's not worth anything, you don't have any joy, you don't have any victory, you don't have anything, you come to the person of Jesus, and he gives to you new life. He gives you to, to you the life that's super abundantly filled with good things. And that's not always just in the physical sense. It's in the spiritual that he's talking about more than anything else here. But he says, like he had risen, you know, he had caused three different people to come back from uh, a state of being physically dead. He had raised those back to life. He's saying the same in the spiritual sense is what he does for you and me. When we come to him and place our faith and trust in him, he gives to us new life. We are as though we have been resurrected from death even in this life. I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to keep that in mind because that's so important for us to understand what happens when we come to Jesus. So remember to speak of the resurrection from now on as being Jesus, as being the person of Jesus. He said, I am the resurrection, not there is an it out here somewhere. 
All right, now, this is where we left off. And she makes her declaration, I now believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. The same declaration, the same great confession that Peter had made. And yet, this was a woman, and this was a woman in the valley. This was a woman going through the greatest of despairs in her life at that point. And she, when he says to her, do you believe what I'm saying? I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe this? She said, yes, I believe. I believe that you are the son of the living God. The same confession that Peter had made. And yet, as Ironside said, I believe this was a greater confession even than that of Peter because he had been on so many mountaintops you know, and seen so many miracles that Martha had not seen. And yet this confession came out of a valley experience rather than a mountaintop experience, which, make, which makes it all the more special. Right, verse 28, with these words, she went to call her sister Mary. Now, she had been out here and had this confrontation with Jesus. And he said to her, go back and get your sister. Go back to the house and get Mary. And she, uh, with these words, she went to call her sister Mary. And taking her aside, she said, the master is here and he's asking for you. He wants to see you as an individual. He wants, he has something he wants to say to you. And when Mary heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet reached the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were in the house condoling with Mary, remember the story you visualized or the account you visualized of how they stayed right very closely around the family. And if they left to go back to the tomb, to the chamber, the wailing chamber, they would go with them. They never left them for a moment. So when they saw Mary leave the house, they went after her, for they supposed that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, Mary, Martha's purpose in going to her and whispering to her, Jesus wants to see you, Jesus wants to say something to you, was hopefully to get her out of there, you know, and get her over so she could have a few minutes alone with him, and so that she wouldn't be, neither of them would be so bothered with all this crowd. And yet it didn't work. They were on their toes. They weren't sleeping, consolers, comforters. They were on their toes. They saw her leave. They went running after. So when he spoke to the account, the confrontation between Mary and Jesus took place, there were all these throngs of mourners around listening to this. Okay, so verse 32. So Mary came to the place where Jesus was. As soon as she caught sight of him, what did she do? She fell at his feet. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my whole life. In the house, she fell at good times, she fell at his feet. See, he was there to eat. There were no tragic circumstances surrounding that. Jesus came in, she fell at his feet. Hard times, you know, your brother died, everything looks hopeless, she fell at his feet. And then in chapter 12, the one coming up, you're going to find once again, back at the celebration, another good time. Lazarus has been raised. Lazarus is back sitting at the dinner table with them, and they never thought they would see him again until the resurrection day. And here they all sit around the table, and Jesus there with them. Mary falls at his feet. I love that woman. I just love that woman. I really do. I've come to have more respect for Martha than I used to. I used to have a hard time with Martha, and I'll be real, real quick to admit that I used to just really give her a hard time. But I've come to appreciate some things through this study that I've never seen before. And that was in the midst of her hurry and scurry, she still was the one who went up to Jesus and confessed that he was the Son of God. That was a bold confession. And it was in times where that were very difficult for her. And something else that's coming up, I want you to notice. So Mary came to the, to the place where Jesus was, and she fell at his feet, and she said, Oh, sir, oh, Lord, if... She says the same thing Martha said. If you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
and here, one of those places, how many places have you ever began, began to study and you wished you had a tape of it? You know, you wished you could hear how it was said. Because we could take the same words and say it in diff with different tones and different inflections, different attitudes, and we would get a totally different thing. I wonder if the way they said this was exactly the same. If Martha, in her, you know, in her very staid way, might have gone up to him and said, if you had been here, you know, you should have been here. And if Mary might have said, now this is just supposition, Please don't take it as any more than that. This is what I'm reading into it. If Mary might have said, oh, you know, if, if you just could have possibly been here in a way that was just so contrite, so broken, you know, if you could have been anything, might have happened. Now, they said basically the same thing. Maybe they, it wasn't any different from the fact that both of them were on the same spiritual level. One was more expressive in her worship than the other. It may have been more, nothing more than that. You can, you can judge things like this for yourself as you study and you get to know these two women and get to know them. That's special. These people are in here. They're real people. They're not fictitious. And we can get to know them like they're friends of ours by way of the Word of God. All right, so she said, if you'd just been here, my brother would not have died. And she's just, at that point, her, what's describing her weeping is again wailing. You know, it's not like just tears. It's like screaming hysterically. And there's a different, a different verb there from what's describing Mary and describing the mourners with her as opposed to the tears it says Jesus shed. When it says Jesus wept, it meant tears literally ran down his face. He didn't wail, you know, for any length of time or anything like that. Tears ran down his face. So let's look at, at what it describes. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews, her companions, weeping, that's wailing. The verb means to scream aloud, wailing. He's deeply moved. And I want some different translations there. Would you give me, it's verse 34, I believe, 33 and 34 in there. What do you have? I have King James. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her. And we're going to have him shedding the tears just in another verse or two. All right, so the weeping there, the verb there means to wail. And don't forget that. Anybody else got another one? Kitty, you got about six there. Most of them just say Jesus wept. All right, it's just before that. I want the verse before that. Uh-huh. 34, 33, 33. Here's our read. Does anybody have another one you would like to share with us? Okay, I want you to bring that out. Okay. Word there for that, I'm told. And see, because I don't understand any Greek, I go on, on all the commentaries I read from, and I trust that they know Greek, and they do. And what it's saying there, the verb really does mean to be indignant over it. And this would be the correct translation. And so it said, after going through much length, each one of them to say that it was totally out of character for Jesus to be angry with Mary are angry with the mourners because they were weeping. This would not be in character with him. That what he saw as the Son of God there was the results of sin, suffering, and death that had come into the world that God had created so pure and so beautiful. And that he was indignant. The whole sight of this sin and death that was around him, the stench of all of this, made his, his soul just cry out in indignance, you know, just, just crying out against what sin had brought into the world. Now, that would be an explanation for the, the, the verb indignant, if you have that. Uh, to explain to you why he would be, it, it says that it's like a horse snorting. 
like a horse would would just snort real loud. You know, he had something inside him he just snorted about. And this would be the picture here, according to the verb. And here again, I don't know anything about verbs, but I think if you trust Ironside and Campbell Morgan and Herschel Hobbs and all of them, and all of them agree, you can be pretty safe and saying that they know what they're talking about. All right, so I will, I'll go along with the thought that what he did then at that point, and that verb is different from the, the one when it comes down and says he wept, Jesus uh, shed tears, Jesus cried, Jesus wept, whatever your translation has. There was a different attitude there. First, it must have been that he saw this suffering around him. He, was, he knew what was going to be ahead just so, a week or so out in the future. He knew that there would be victory in the area in, in his death, in his crucifixion, in the blood that was shed. It would come to deliver from this penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin eventually. He knew all this was to come, but how it must have hurt the Son of God to see what man had done. See what sin had done in the world. That makes sense to me. All right, so it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews had her companions weeping, he sighed heavily, or he was indignant, or however you want to look at that. He was agitated heavily and was deeply moved. See, the two different things there. There was that displeasure with sin, but then the deep movement within his soul that caused him to reach out to do his greatest miracle in the midst of all of this. It says... Um, replied, come and see, sir. And then Jesus wept. There's so much speculation about why he wept. Why did tears flow down his face at that time? Was he weeping over Lazarus? And you say, no, you know, he couldn't have been weeping over Lazarus because he knew that in no more than maybe 30 minutes, Lazarus was going to be back. Some people have said he was weeping over the fact exactly that, that Lazarus was going to have to come back, that Lazarus' soul was with God. And to bring him back to the heartache and the suffering and all the things you go through in this life must have just broken his heart. To think that, that you know, this miracle would cause somebody to have to come back from the very bosom of God the Father would have, have caused him to weep. Um, that's that's a, a nice speculation, but there's no basis for really, you know, for really saying that's absolutely what it is. What he must have been weeping over at that particular point was that compassionate heart of God that just loved every individual around there so much that at this point he's literally weeping uh, with the people, with Mary, with Martha, if she was crying at that point, with the mourners around, that he literally shed tears over that, those people suffering in that kind of anguish. And that did an awful lot for me. It did an awful lot for me in that it's beautiful for me. And, and in the midst of this, John is writing to a Greek world. And the Greek world believed that all gods were compassionless, passionless gods, see. That they never thought, they never laughed, they never cried, they never were in, had joy over anything. They never felt any kind of emotion because to feel emotion, to feel love, to feel uh, tears or something like that would mean that somebody had power over you, see. And so God, any kind of God, God, the Christian God, any other kind of God would not allow anybody to have power over them and make them cry or make them, you know, make them laugh or anything like that. So they were all just sort of, you know, up there for nothing. They were just there, you know, no feeling, no emotion, no compassion, no passion, no nothing. And so John is giving insight here to a Greek world that's blowing their minds. So if you can put yourself into that place and you hear this for a first time, God... God cried. God in His Son, in Christ, shed tears. He did care. 
He did love like that. He did feel deep inside him things that moved him, moved him, troubled him, moved him. And that's the God we have. That's the God we worship. That's the God is revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing to know no matter what you're going through. I don't care how horrible the sickness is or whether death comes or anything. You cling to these, this passage right here. You cling to the fact that, that God cares about you as an individual so much that he must just be moved in such a deep way, moved to reach out to you as an individual and to give you everything that you need in and through that crisis. Claim that. Claim it. Believe it. That's how he's revealed in the Son. And we're supposed to see the Father through the Son. And if the Son showed this picture, it's exactly like the Father. Because they were one. And that just ought to put a whole different perspective on anything we go through. If we really believe this, if we really believe this, it should change anything that's happening to any one of us tomorrow. You know, none of us know what we're going to have to go through tomorrow. None of us know through what we're going to have to go through through this day. But if we feel like God is so far away and God doesn't care about me as an individual, God has completely departed from me as an individual, we've just got so much pain and so much heartache. But if we believe that God loves me like he loved these people right here, enough to be troubled in his soul and enough to reach out in this special kind of way and perform a miracle in and through this, he loves me just that much and he loves you just that much. He does. I'll stake my life on that. All right, so he said, after that, they said, come and see Jesus wept. And the Jews said, how dearly, here were two reactions, how dearly he must have loved them because he shed tears. That must mean he loved them. That doesn't always mean it. That does not. Some people love deeply who never seem to shed a tear. Like I said, turn tears on like tap water. I wish I knew the number of times I have shed tears to get my way with my husband. And you know what I'm talking about. I can turn them on like tap water. I can. So no, I mean, I would never use that as, as what you would, you know, gauge how I care, you know, or how somebody doesn't care. Somebody else may never shed a tear and care much more than I do. All right, so this one group said, boy, that must mean he loved him. He cried. But some of them said, could not this man who opened this blind, the blind man's eyes, they had never gotten over that miracle. That was one that blew their whole composure. Couldn't this man who opened that blind man's eyes have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? You know, couldn't he have done more? See, they were not thinking in terms of what he was going to do. It's always in the past what he should have done. What could have been if this had been? On and on they would always go. And they would get so hung up in speculation about past, they would not think about what he was about to do right in front of the very eyes. And Jesus again sighed deeply. He heard this. And it caused him from the very inside out just to sigh in a deep kind of, of, of again, the verb, it says, is agitated. Again, like something is very troubling him greatly. And then he went over to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone placed against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. It's interesting, two times in this account right here, he tells men something to do. Whatever we can do, and, and as far as human instruments, he expects us to do. There are too many people today who sit around waiting for everything to happen. There are some things they should be doing. They are quite capable of doing. 
and we'll just sit there saying, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to say anything until the Lord just does it for me. You know, the Lord's going to do it all for me. In two instances right here where the greatest miracle he performed, he told him, go move the stone away. He could have just, he could have moved the stone. He had the power to move the stone, but he didn't do what they could do. He said, you go move the stone away. And Martha, the dead man's sister, here was the one who just made that great confession, remember? Thou art the Son, the Son of the living God, you know. Her first instinct is not that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. She didn't understand anything like that. She must have thought, and the Jewish thinking back then was that for for the first three days somebody was in their tomb, the soul and the spirit hovered around them, wanting to get back in. But on the fourth day, decay set in. And you began to lose the identity of the face. And when the face started to decay, the soul and the spirit left because it didn't recognize them anymore. And so they left. Now, remember, this is the fourth day, which is exactly, if you've ever wondered why you waited four days, this is exactly the reason. On the fourth day, there was nobody around who could have said, the soul and the spirit just went back in, see. And he came back to life. They were going to know on this fourth day that it was a miracle and that the power of God had performed the miracle through the Son. They would praise the name of the Father. They would praise the Son, glorify both the Father and the Son through this. All right, so when, when he said, take away Martha's inst here she was again, always, you know, jumping in. She said, sir, by now there'll be a stench. He's been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that... Um, if you have the glory of God. And so they went on and removed the stone. And then Jesus looked upwards and he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that you would hear me. This is what he's saying. I knew that you would hear me all the time. But I said this so that those around me, so that those around me might hear and might believe on you because of this. This is what he's saying. I didn't have to say it. I knew it already. I knew it four days ago. I knew that you heard me and you were going to work a miracle through this. But I'm saying this audibly so that all these people around might hear and might know that what's about to happen has happened because of you. Jesus always gave the honor and the glory to the Father. He did. He glorified the Father and all he did. He always let them know the power came through him as, by way of the Father. All right, so he says, But I spoke for the sake of the people around me that they might believe that thou didst send me. And then he raised his voice in a great cry, and he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And when he said this, here's the speculation again. Why did he scream? Why did he scream? Did, did Lazarus need the scream? Way down, it was a lot of steps down in there, and way down below that in a, a, a sunken uh, place, below even the steps that you went down into the wailing chamber. Did Lazarus? No, Lazarus didn't need it. But all those mass numbers of people gathered around needed to hear him say, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came forth as a result of the word, the word that Jesus spoke. When he said it, that power caused him to come forth. And how many times have you heard preachers and read different accounts of where it said, it's so wonderful, he said, Lazarus. If he hadn't called his name, he would have emptied the cemeteries. His word was so powerful, if he hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, every dead person would have come out of the cemetery. But you know the beautiful thing about this, and what just is staggering to me, is one day that same power, that same voice, is going to call every one of us. You call every single born-again Christian from the grave. The bodies from the grave. Our souls, the Bible teaches that our souls go immediately to be with Him. They're safe, they're secure, they are with Him. 
but the body, the resurrected body is going to be called forth from the grave one day. That same thing that happened. The only difference is, is that we'll truly be resurrected. And Lazarus was not truly resurrected. He was resuscitated. He was raised again to die again physically. He died a physical death twice. See? And when we're raised again, Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection according to the scripture. He was the first one to be raised from the grave never to die again. He will never die again. They killed him once. He died a physical death once, but he will never die again. He will live forever. And the same with you and me. When we're raised again, we'll truly be resurrected because we'll be raised never to die again. You see the difference in the case of the uh, Jairus' daughter, in the case of the son of the widow Nain, of Nain, in the case of Lazarus. They were all given life again, physical life again, but they would be limited by time and space. They would be no more than they were before, and they would die again physically. We'll be so much more than we are now. We'll have new bodies. We'll have power within us to not be limited by space and time and everything. We'll be like him. We'll be like Jesus in his resurrected body. And that's thrilling. All right, so even at this, this was still the greatest miracle. A picture, a picture of what was going to happen at, at, uh, in, in just a short number of days. The dead man came out, his hands and feet swathed in linen bands, his face wrapped in a cloth. And he, he came, his legs must have been wrapped separ separately because it says that what happened when he came out, he came out like a normal person. He walked up those steps. He walked out that thing, but he must have been struggling with his walk because he was still bound, even with something over his face, you know, still wrapped up like he was. And Jesus said to them, here's something, here's something again that man can do. He said, loose him and let him go. Loose. You take the wrapping. Jesus could have called him out of there with the wrappings off, but there's some things he expects us to do. He expects us to reach out and take and do for ourselves. He said, take the wrappings off and let him free. And a spiritual significance, underlying spiritual lesson there is this. There's always life first and then liberty, then freedom. Usually we get our life, but we're still bound by tradition and, and family and, and cultural environment. We're still bound by so many things that it takes us quite some time after we're born again before we're free. Before we have liberty, we're still so bound, so bound by traditions and culture and things we've been taught our life in a church or, or whatever. And it takes quite some time usually for us to realize that when we really know the truth, the truth sets us free. And we're free indeed when we're free in Jesus. When we just let go of everything and allow him to be the one who teaches us in spite of what we think was law. You know, in spite of what we think had to be just right, because our mothers and our grandmothers told us this for, for years and years and years and years, because our society taught us this, because our denomination taught us this, I don't care what it is. When you come to something in the Word of God that counters any of this, you let go of it. And in letting go of all these preconceived things that have us so bound, we find freedom. So usually life comes and then freedom. And I thought that was an interesting, interesting thing because this was true. I know it was true in my case. And I would venture to say most of you have found the same experience, that you didn't find total freedom, you know, until you began to study and you began to, to find in the Word of God things that made you stand up and say, is this, is this the way it is, you know? Because I've been taught this all my life, is this really the way it is? And then you begin, as you find these things and discover these things, to let go 
of all your past preconceived ideas and notions and prejudices, and you become free. You become free indeed in him. All right, he said, uh, 45, Now many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. It did cause men to believe on him when they saw this miracle. But some of them went to the Pharisees and reported what he had done. Everybody didn't believe. Some were tattletales. So they went to the Pharisees. And thereupon the chief priests and Pharisees convened a meeting of the council. What action are we taking, they said, and this man is performing many signs. If we leave him alone like this, the whole populace will believe in him. And then, isn't it funny that some people are afraid to believe in Jesus? Have you ever noticed? There have been, I've even heard people say, I don't come uh, to church because when I come, it upsets me so much I can't get over it. You know, I'm, I'm almost afraid to come to church because when I come, it bothers me so I can't get rid of that for a couple of weeks before I can get back to normal. I heard a woman say one time that she didn't come on Tuesday morning. She was scared to come. She was scared to come on Tuesday morning for fear of what she would hear that might change her life. Isn't that amazing? The same fear exists today among people right around us that existed. They were afraid for people to believe in Jesus. And here's what Caiaphas, the high priest, said. He said, you know nothing whatever. You do not use your own judgment. It's more uh, to your interest that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should be destroyed. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't have any idea what he was saying at that time, but he spoke such truth. He spoke a gem of revelation because he said, it's one man must die that this nation might be delivered. One man's got to die, and he did have to die. Sometimes even the worst abominable creature in the world will open his mouth and something will come out, you know, that'll be absolute wisdom. They won't even know what they said, but there'll be some wisdom in it. The scripture even says he did not say this of his own accord. He did not say this of his own accord. But as the high priest in office that year, and this was their thinking, that God would speak and give message through the priest, and especially through the high priest, he was prophesying that Jesus would die for the nation, uh, would die not for the nation alone, but to gather together the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted his death. Jesus would die not just for the Jewish nation, but the Gentile nation as well. To as many as would hear this, and remember in the, the chapter on the Good Shepherd, where you must hear my voice. I must go beyond. You must share this. There are other sheep who must hear my voice and come to me and be joined together as one in the fold. Accordingly, Jesus no longer went about publicly in Judea, but left that region from the country, bordering on the desert, came to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples. Jesus didn't court danger unnecessarily. He was not the one who would just go around saying, God's not going to let anything happen to me, you know, until the time he's right anyway. He didn't do it. When it was a uh, circumstance like this, he would leave that region if necessary if it meant that there was to be a premature death there. Anything premature, anything that would cause everything God wanted to take place to, to happen before his death, that was going to happen because Jesus was so submissive to his will. We were going down a uh, four-mile post one night, and there was a young man, beautiful Christian young man, who had, he didn't follow Jesus' admonition. He was walking, you know, four-mile post is this teeny little dangerous thing and just ditches on the side. It's not big enough for two cars. And this young man was walking right down the street in the dark. And we saw and noticed that he had on a Sperino outfit, that he was one of our Sperino singers. And so we went past, and Laddie said, you know, that was one of ours. He, he said, that's so dangerous. He backed up, went back up. He said, what are you doing walking down the middle? Dark, you, don't you know you're going to get hit? And he said, oh, the Lord's not going to let anything happen to me. 
walking right down the middle, four mile post in black dark. And if the Lord wants me to leave, if somebody hits me, the Lord will just want me to leave right now. You know, that'll be the reason somebody don't hit me. That's foolish. That's foolish. And that's not even according to what Jesus did. He took leave when this was about to happen and they were about to converge on him and plotting against his death. He even went to a safer place for a time. It was not that he was afraid of death. He didn't mind. What did he have to lose? He was going back to glory. <laughs> he was going back to be with his father, back to all the, you know, the riches of heaven. And he had been confined here for 33 years, going through nothing but, you know, but pain and heartache and, and refusal and rejection and, and all the agony that he was put through. It wasn't that he was afraid to die. He understood death much better than we do. But it was that the time was not right, and there are certain precautions you take that are safety factors. And sensible people take those precautions. Sensible people do. You're not afraid, you're just sensible. So Caiaphas, the high priest, and at this time they had gotten away from everybody who was a priest being of the line, the Levitical line. You could buy that office. If you had enough power, you could buy that office. And this man was as evil as anybody ever was. And he was sitting there in the, the office of the high priest. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were joining together. They didn't like each other. They had, they had nothing in common. The Pharisees were that group of people who were not too political, but they were the group who just kept all the little dot and tittles of the law and, and everything just exactly according to the law. And that's all they ever wanted was just to live according to the law. Nothing more. You know, life, if life carried nothing but that, that would be okay with them. The Sadducees were the powerful, affluent, uh, influential group, the ones who would join together with the Roman government and, and they would collaborate with the Roman government as long as they were allowed to live in comfort, you know, and have places of authority and everything. And their whole concern here was that the Roman government was going to see in Jesus, all these people coming to Jesus, they were going to see in him a threat. It was going to cause some kind of upheaval to take place. The Roman government was going to move in and take their temple and take their authority away from them. They didn't care about anything else except their own sacred kind of state that they lived in, you know, their affluent state and their influential state. And so here's the picture here. Now we have the Sadducees joining. And besides that, the Sadducees are just coming on, under the picture because they were the ones who didn't believe in the resurrection, see. They didn't believe that anybody was resurrected. There was life after death. Pharisees did. So now the Pharisees, totally different from the Sadducees, joined together. And both of these groups joined together with the Romans. And everybody joins together against one man, against Jesus. The only man who came for nothing except peace and love and some sort of sanity to a world in this kind of upheaval. And the whole thing they were saying, he said, if we can get rid of this one man, Jesus, then our nation will be delivered. They got rid of Jesus. They killed him. And in a few short years, maybe 40 years, 30, 40 years, that land was turned upside down by the Romans. They came in and they said you could run something over. It was so flattened. The temple area was so flattened. They destroyed that city. You see, they didn't destroy because of Jesus. I wonder what would have happened had they had some sort of understanding of what he really offered those people. That nation probably would have been delivered from that, that incident that happened under Titus if they had allowed Jesus to, to remain and his people to be free to claim a world you know, in peace and love for Christ. Think about some of those things. Those are interesting thoughts. You know, their, mis their whole total misunderstanding 
of who he was and what he wanted to offer. He didn't want, ever want trouble, peace, and he wanted love, and he wanted everybody to take advantage of what God had for every single individual, and that was new life. New life, and the life more abundant than any other life they could ever dream of having with their laws and with their affluence and with all their little things they thought were so precious and priceless.